Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the book of Colossians, and here the team will be discussing the last portion of Colossians chapter 2. We do invite you to take a look at the links down there in the show notes. Right now on our website, we are hosting a Theopolis conversation on the topic of biblical law. Over on our YouTube channel, we are wrapping up a series on a theology of music with Peter Lightheart. And we have also continued to work on the Theopolis Blogcast. That is our other podcast stream, which consists of audio recordings of our written pieces on our blog. With that, we really hope that you enjoy this conversation, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts, discussing Colossians chapter 2. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background recording. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Uh, we, I should mention James Bijan, who is normally with us, was not able to make it for this recording session, and uh, he'll return and jo- rejoin us as we continue in our series through the letter of Paul to, Col- to the Colossians. We're in the middle of chapter two in our studies. We're kind of inching our way along uh, through Colossians. There's a lot to talk about in nearly every verse. Uh, and the uh, last time we looked at basically verses 8 through 14 or so, we want to go circle back and pick up 14 and 15. We had talked about the, the imagery of the certificates and the handwriting of debt in verse 14, but we hadn't really discussed verse 15 at all, which is quite a dramatic claim of Paul. But I, I want to I highlight something that's running through this chapter and through into chapter 3, one way to characterize Paul's teaching here is to t- talk about uh, Paul presenting two ways. Uh, there's, a, there's an old way. There's the way of following the traditions of men, what Paul calls the elementary principles of the world. There's a way that's characterized by certain practices like circumcision. He's going to talk about food laws. He's going to talk about a calendar in the next section. There's a particular way of life that's associated with that old way that's, that's associated with childhood. And then there's the way of maturity in Christ. We talked about verses 9 and 10. The fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in Christ, and we dwell in Christ. And therefore, we are made into fullness by receiving the fullness of God that is in Christ. So there's a a way of infancy or a way of childhood and a way of maturity, a way of slavery and a way of sonship, which is a fairly common early Christian paradigm. There's, There's a lot of early... A lot of the early post-apostolic, post-New Testament literature uh, lays out these two ways. Uh, Epistle Barnabas lays out two ways of life. It has a whole list of characteristics of one way of life, uh, the way of life of the world, and a whole list of characteristics of the way of life of, of Christians and believers. Some of those uh, post-apostolic, post-New Testament documents, that those two ways become kind of two moral, moral paths, and the whole paradigm can take a moralistic turn. You just have to choose which way you're going to follow and pursue the virtues and the practices and the habits and the, uh, the way of life of one or the other. You choose the way, uh, choose the way, of, uh, way of life, and you have certain, ways that, certain things you have to do in order to continue on that way. And I, I think what, what, what keeps Paul from being that kind of legalist or moralist is the fact that these two ways are really rooted in two worlds— and the, the binary choice that he's setting before the Colossians is really a binary of two ages, two worlds uh, that have been separated by the coming of Christ. Christ has brought in a new age, 
by his death, he's, uh, by his death, he's uh, died to the flesh. In union with his death to the flesh, we're dead to the flesh. We're dead to the world, dead to the elementary principles of the world, and alive in Christ. And so the, those, the, there are practices and virtues and ways of life, both individually and corporately, that are associated both with the old way and the new way. But more fundamentally, what's going on in Paul is a distinction, uh, kind of a, a distinction of ages. Uh, it's an eschatological distinction. Uh, and I think that's, that's crucial for understanding uh, and, and for understanding uh, how, how Paul's uh, instruction, how Paul's teaching works. Jeff made this uh, comment in the last episode, but Paul is not at all discontinuing the Jewish habit of giving imperatives. He gives a lot of imperatives. He gives instructions. There are rules for Christians. Christians have to obey certain things and follow certain things. But that obedience and that way of life is rooted in the fact that we're already in Christ. We're already dead to the world. We already walk in newness of life. And so that union with Christ and the that union with the new age is the more fundamental reality. I go back to Colossians 2, 6. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. We do walk in a particular way, but that walk is a walk in union with Christ. It's a walk that's according to the new age that we've entered. It's a walk according to the new world, the new creation that we already share in. And that's um, that fundamental theology is what keeps uh, Paul's teaching from, from declining into a kind of moralistic uh, exhortation to abandon one way of life and, and, and adhere to a new. As I said, I did, I, we did want to go back to, um, I don't know if we had anything more to say about verse 14, but uh, we didn't really get to verse 15, where Paul uses this uh, dramatic, has this dramatic description of uh, disarming rulers and authorities. So I wanted to open up with that verse. One of the first things that stands out about that is it's back to back with his statement about Christ on the cross. And if we were to think of an image of people being disarmed, put to an open shame and triumphed over, we would think about something like the image of a cross. Um, is there anything more of an open shame than that? Anything more disarming um, and anything more of a, a representation of the pow a power triumphing over, over some person or a group of persons? And yet it's precisely through that that Christ inflicts this victory over the, the powers of this age, the rulers of authorities and authorities. And it's something of the, um, the upside down character of the gospel, the way that the gospel inverts what we would expect and um, ends up Christ's great triumph being at that position where you'd expect the very opposite of, of victory to be seen. And it's glory associated with the point of shame. It's triumph associated with the point of um, defeat. And it's power and strength and the power to disarm other people um, associated with that place where it would seem that you are most weak and um, disarmed. The other connection I see here, Elster and Peter, and see what you think about this. I've um, thinking about this more carefully is that you have not just back to back uh, what you just mentioned, Elster, but also the canceling of the record of debt with its legal demands. So that there's, there's this forgiveness uh, that happens. And then immediately 
that leads to the disarming of the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame, triumphing over them. Um, and I, I have to wonder if you think about the history of the old world and the old order, um, the way it comes to a head in, uh, in the ministry of Jesus, uh, the way we see the old order coming to a head is with this uh, way of using the, um, the elemental principles of the world, the, the old law, way of using that to enslave people way of using the fact that people are in debt and are guilty in a, in a kind of manipulative way. I mean, Jesus talks about this all through his ministry, where uh, he tries to release people from the tyranny of the Pharisees using the oral law, which is uh, a, a distorted understanding of the legal demands of God in order to enslave people. He's going to bring people out. He's going to bring an exodus out. And that exodus is the cross where he deals with their guilt and releases them from Pharaoh and disarms the rulers and authorities. And I don't, I, I do not like this idea. This is another topic maybe that somehow this is only demonic spiritual rulers and authorities. I, I think this is, I don't know why you need to make that that dichotomy there. I mean, the demonic forces are embodied in uh, the high priest, Caiaphas, and Ananias, and Pilate, and, and the Pharisees and scribes. They're all there, and they're disarmed. Uh, they're put to shame. They're actually put to shame um, by Jesus taking upon himself the debt that stood against us. So I may not be saying this is is precisely as, as, as I want to, but the fact that Jesus forgives the debt and releases us from the liabilities, both real and also imagined um, and, and inappropriate and, and enslaving uh, from those who, again, presided over the end of that old world, uh, means that we're free. Uh, of course, he's going to go on and say, then no one should pass judgment about any of these old uh, regulations. We're free. The way we way these rulers are disarmed is they have no power over us anymore because we've been forgiven. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I would just add something from Hebrews. that uh, um, Hebrews uh, talks about those who are enslaved by the fear of death all their lives. So there's a release from guilt. There's also release from the threat of death. So Jesus is exposing the rulers and authorities to, to, to shame in that respect too. And I agree with you. I don't think we need to polarize the demonic and the political. Uh, I, I mean, this is, a, this is a common Augustinian motif that the, you have this kind of inter, interweaving of demonic and cultural patterns, demonic and, and political things. He, he talks about um, uh, demonic uses of signs in, on Christian teaching, and he talks about demons as having a role to play in ancient pagan political systems. So I think rulers and authorities, it seems to me like the first instance, we're talking about human rulers and authorities, however inspired or directed, uh, they might be in the background by, by demonic powers. I think that uh, Jesus' death is exposing the Romans and Jews who put him to death to open shame. He's exposing their impotence. Another aspect of this, and I think Jeff alluded to it at the end of his comments, is 
there's a danger of polarizing, for instance, accounts of the cross in terms of Christus Victor and other things like that with um, atonement um, in uh, more legal or um, dealing with guilt and um, the record, the, the debt that we have in uh, that more moral sense. And yet, I think Paul brings the, those aspects together here, that the power of these um, rulers and authorities is very much connected with our guilt and our debt. We can see that in the Old Testament in several places. For instance, you might think about Zechariah and the high priest Joshua before, before the Lord and Satan opposing him and the way in which the guilt is used as a means of power. And I think we see this in human authorities more generally. Guilt is often a means of power. Um, fear of death is a means of power. Um, and a number of these other aspects that we might want to polarize in our atonement theologies actually come together very neatly within the breadth of atonement theology that we have within the New Testament. I think that the idea that Jesus' death exposes powers to shame makes a public display of them. I, li I like uh, Alistair's characterization that you have this kind of inversion of, of empirical reality. What looks like Jesus exposed to open shame, what looks like the trial of Jesus and his defeat is the opposite. But I think that that inversion is, there's a logic to it. And there's several aspects to it that I think are going on. I've, I've, I've uh, thought about this more in, in terms of uh, early Christian martyrdom and the effect uh, early Christian martyrs had on the Roman world that was, that was uh, persecuting them. Uh, I've explored this in a, in a First Things article a number of years ago. But one of the things that happens as martyrs are, you have martyrs who are peace-loving, peaceable citizens of Rome who are being hounded persecuted, pursued, put in the Colosseum, you know, forced to fight gladiators, put on the, on the stake, wild animals released on them. Anybody who knows them knows that they don't deserve this, that these are people who are good and peace-loving and peaceable. They're, they're good citizens of Rome, and yet the Roman Empire is terrorizing them. So there's a, there's a shift in sympathies that occurs. And what, what happens is that the, the power of Rome gets exposed as what Augustine describes it, calls it, it is uh, pure libido dominandi. It's pure lust for domination. Under the cover of pursuing the justice of Rome, they're actually just seeking to dominate. But that, as followers of Christ are subjected to this kind of torture and this kind of oppression, the brutality and the bruteness, the cruelty of Roman power gets exposed more and more. And there's this, there's this kind of self-reinforcing cycle because the you know, powers don't like being exposed. I should say, too, that the powers are not only exposed as brutal, but they're exposed as impotent, because insofar as Christians don't back down when they're, when they're threatened, they are showing that they don't fear death. They've been freed from the fear of death. And if they're freed from the fear of death, then they're free of state power, because that's the worst that the state can do. You, you can't do anything beyond killing somebody. So that exposes the impotence of the state at the same time as it's, it's exposing its brutality. And then you have this kind of self-reinforcing cycle where the powers dislike being exposed. They don't like their impotence being shown up. They don't like these people who aren't afraid of them. And so they intensify the terror. Uh, and insofar as Christians don't buckle before the intensified terror, it just exposes the further, further exposes the impotence of the powers. So you have this um, 
uh, in the early church, you seem to have this continuous stripping away, this continuous public display of the impotence and the brutality of the rulers and authorities. Jesus triumphs over them by, by triumphing in his, in his followers, his faithful followers who are willing to die, don't love life even to death, as, as Revelation 12 says. And so I, I think that there's, that's part of the dynamic. And so one of the writers on early Christian martyrdom says that you, what you have basically is the cross of Jesus is replayed over and over again in Colosseums throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, and each time it's replayed, each time you have uh, Christians who are willing to follow Jesus, take up their cross and follow Jesus, every time you have it replay, uh, replayed, you have the Roman Empire is again, he again disarms the rulers and authorities and makes a public display of them. Peter, I think you agree with this. It it's, uh, goes all the way back to the book of Acts, too. It's not just the Roman state. It's also the Jewish powers in Jerusalem, especially after Jesus dies, they have an opportunity to repent, but they become more and more power-hungry and controlling. It's interesting the way that Paul in Colossians 2.16 characterizes this right after he says that the rulers and authorities have been put to open shame and triumphed and, and um, triumph over them. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you so that there is there is still these folks out there lingering who want to have control over you, who want to keep you in your place, who don't like the freedom that you have, okay? And kind of skip over what that entails in the end of verse 16 and 17. And then it's 18, look, don't let them disqualify you. And so these are people who insist on asceticism, worship of angels, visions, they're puffed up in their sensuous minds. So there is this arrogance, this, uh, uh, this desire to control, to manipulate, this, this uh, lust for power, as Augustine says. And that's part of, uh, that's the way that the old world ends <laughs> with that kind of lust for power, which turns out to be impotent in the face of the cross of Christ and Christians who deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus. Yeah, you absolutely have that in, in the book of Acts. I've been going preaching through the early chapters of Acts. And one of the things that's going on there is you pointed out, Jeff, in the past, is you have this, you have this kind of this transfer from the Jewish authorities from the Sanhedrin to the apostles in terms of leadership of Israel. Part of that is a transfer as it were of fear. Because you now have the apostles and their followers who are not afraid of the Sanhedrin. And if you're trying to rule a people and you can't instill any, any fear in them, then you're losing your authority. And instead, the apostles are the ones who are Ananias and Sapphira. That incident, for example, spreads fear around everybody who hears about it in Jerusalem. So, it, yeah, it's the same kind of dynamic going on in, in the early church with Jewish persecutors. And through all of this, one of the things that really does get foregrounded is the importance of having true confidence to act in terms of the victory that Christ has won. Um, we get this elsewhere in Paul, this, this danger of even with these strict powers that will respond to their snarls and their barks, that we will um, act as still the coward slaves that we once were. And the danger of going back to that old way of life is considerable. We've been habituated to it. And there are people all around us who are habituated to it, who do not realize that there has been this disarming of the powers. But yet, if we act 
by faith, we will find that they are in fact disarmed, that they do not have the power to carry out the threats that they would claim, and that there is a greater power that stands over them. But that need to confidently live in terms of the reality of the victory won through the cross of Christ is essential to enjoying the benefits that are won by Christ's victory. It's very easy to um, be in a situation where Christ has actually disarmed these powers, but we still act as if they were very much armed. Yeah, I went off on a, on a um, digression about uh, later Roman, per- Roman persecution. I think, Jeff, uh, you brought us back to Acts, and I think that's the right kind of context for thinking about what's, what's going on in Colossians, because the indications are that he's talking about Judaizers, especially when you get to 16, as he said, let no one ask, act as a judge. And the things that he lists as uh, the standards of judgment are Jewish practices, food and drink, you know, wh- whether you're eating unclean food or uh, unclean drink, which uh, seems to be a, one of these things that's a, that's a human tradition that's introduced. There are no unclean drinks in the old covenant system uh, or in respect to these festivals, keeping the Jewish calendar. So it's the Jewish powers, these Jewish authorities and rulers that are most specifically in view. And as you said, Jeff, we're, the Colossians are free from that because they have died with Christ through those elemental things. They now have the reality, the body that is Christ, and they don't have to cling to the shadows anymore. Do you all see also verse 18 referring primarily to Jewish problems, issues? So let no one disqualify you by insisting on asceticism, worship of angels, you know, angelic. That seems to be one of the big issues with Paul or whoever wrote the book of Hebrews in chapter one, uh, this obsession with angels. Uh, Angels, we know, of course, in some really important ways, uh, managed the world before Christ. Um, Jesus, of course, takes over that management. But also, the, even the asceticism can be interpreted in terms of, as Paul says later, doctrines of demons have to do with forbidding people to eat certain foods and marrying, not marrying, and all those kinds of things. Those are clearly also reference to Judaizing kinds of practices. Um, so, I'm, I mean, I've, I've just read both 16 and 18 as dealing primarily with Judaizing issues and tendencies. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, and I've taken, I've linked up the worship of angels to the same passage in Hebrews, uh, where the attachment to angels is all about attachment to the law and the institution of the law that were mediated through angels, as uh, Paul says in Galatians. Um, the other thing, I mean, we can fit this in with what we said in the last episode about reversion to childhood. I like Jim Jordan's uh, uh, image of the purpose of angels in the original creation. So angels are like the drill sergeants are to train Adam, human beings, so that they can grow up to become sons of God and they can be installed as commanders and governors and rulers over the creation. For a little while, we're under angels, uh, but then we're elevated in Christ above the angels and we will be judges of angels. So uh, to, to submit ourselves to angels or to a covenant that was mediated by angels is, again, a kind of reversion to childhood. It's a, it's a rejection of maturity. So, yeah, I think that's right. I'm, I'm taking, I, I take uh, verses 16 through 18, 18 all, as all about uh, the dangers of Judaizing and, and going back under Old Covenant regulations. Well, we're back also, Peter, to your point earlier, maybe it was the last uh, podcast we did about this being 
eschatological. Uh, verse 17, all these things were good in themselves, but there were shadows. The substance belongs to Christ. So that if you understand what has happened in the move from the old to the new and the move from all these shadowy types of symbols and rituals um, to what now, how Christ has embodied all that, um, then you're not going to, you're going to understand their purpose. You're going to be wise about what all that meant and, and not let anyone, again, pass judgment on you, not let anyone disqualify you, or, or if he's, as he's going to say in verse 20, you're not going to submit to this kind of power play uh, because that's all it is. It, it's about uh, them trying to satisfy uh, the flesh. Um, uh, but by the way, I mean that, um, well, I'll wait and get there. The verse 23, interesting options about how to translate that passage. But it, it appears to me that all of this attempt to control uh, and make Christians submit to these things has to do with them wanting to satisfy the flesh, to indulge the flesh, not so much, you know, lust of the body, but flesh in terms of the old way, old Edemic way of living. Um, but we can get to that. Yeah. So much about it is about the focus of our faith. It's very easy I imagine it was very easy for many people within the initial apostolic church to have this misconception that the substance, the focus was Judaism and its whole system. And Christ came in to serve that. Um, but Paul's teaching that the substance is Christ is so important. It, it ends up removing so many of the errors just when you focus upon Christ at the very heart. So for instance, if you're, um, working within the old system, you have this uh, preoccupation with angelic visions and these angels that are serving in the heavenly realm, the powers that they exercise. You might think about the book of Daniel and the um, ways that we see these shadowy figures who are um, angelic powers over empires. And we recognize vast power is being exercised by these um, angelic beings and we might speculate about their particular order. We might think about how we might communicate with them and all these sorts of questions that I think particularly within the intertestamental period, you see a lot of Jewish speculation on those fronts. And yet when you realize that Christ has been placed above all principalities and powers, where you see that all angels are beneath him, as we see in Hebrews chapter one and elsewhere, the focus on angels actually becomes it is seen to be ridiculous. I mean, why focus on these people far down the ranks when you've got the one who's seated at God's right hand himself as the one who intercedes for us, the one to whom we can come in prayer? And that focus upon Christ is in every single respect, I think, that which will do away with the misconceptions that Paul is tackling. Um, same thing with the principle of growth and healthy spirituality the growth and the spirituality comes from Christ, um, from holding fast to him, from looking to him. And as you do that, all these other things will follow. You'll be nourished and knit together and the growth that comes from God will result. But as soon as you start to 
put Christ to one side, treat him as um, peripheral or just secondary to something that is more primary, such as the system of the law itself, you will end up losing all the rest. It's the key um, north star around every which everything else must be oriented. Yeah, I think that's that's important, not just for uh, ancient uh, readers of Colossians, but for modern readers. I mean, there are various movements in modern Christianity uh, that uh, uh, offer something like a promise of a higher form of spirituality uh, through uh, uh, through food practices. You know, uh, you can you can control your sexual urges if you if you eat bran, um, as uh, Mr. Kellogg tried to try to teach everyone. Uh, so there's, uh, there's a maybe particularly in American Christianity, but there's there's been this obsession with diet as a as a means of spiritual achievement. So it's this is not just an ancient ancient thing, and also the, I mean the obsession with angels. Uh, we have similar kinds of things in the modern world. A lot of interest today in the divine council, which is a biblical theme. Uh, and worth investigating insofar as it's a biblical theme, but uh, it can easily become a dominating obsession for people. And as you say, Alistair, that's uh, uh, liable to distract them from what's crucial, the one who is above all the angels. Uh, and in in pop Christian culture, I mean, I encounter this all the time. In fact, just did two weeks ago, where you have um, children's literature, for example, that has to do with uh, angelic visions about grandparents and dead relatives and angels coming to them in visions and telling them, you know, that their grandma's okay or whatever. Uh, and, and then the whole focus of, you know, the little book that, you, you know, you give to your son or daughter is about angelic revelation. And, and, and you, you read this, you're like, Wait a minute. This is this is uh, this is a side thing. Yeah, yes, there are angels. Yes, they do something, but um, in the in the in the New World in the New Testament, wow, we got Jesus. You don't you don't need angels telling us and directing us what to do or giving us the confidence that we need to have about our relatives and their death. That comes from Jesus. I mean, that's that's I hear that's an application of what Alistair is just saying. Um, don't get sidetracked by these other things. They may be real, but there's no promises attached to angelic revelation in the, in the New Testament. It's, it's Jesus revealed to us in, in his word uh, through his apostles. A similar point, I think, is at the heart of the Reformation push against the emphasis upon intercession of the saints, upon the role of Mary, other things like that. Mary's important as a servant of the Lord, but and the saints are a great company that bear witness to his faithfulness. But when we're approaching God, we don't have to go through saints. We don't have to go through Mary. We have direct access to God in Christ. And that emphasis upon the, or that placing the emphasis where scripture places it, on the completion that Christ brings, on the fullness that Christ offers, and the fact that everything of God's promises, every one of God's promises are yes and amen in him, and that gives us a confidence to depend 
wholly upon Christ and not have all these extra supplementary um, sources of grace that we're looking to, where God has not actually promised to be found by us. Yeah, uh, I was. My mind was going in a similar direction. I, I was going to put in a plug for Reformation readings of Paul, which get a lot of bad press from new perspective writers. But they they really did see actual parallels between what was going on in the medieval church and what Paul was dealing with in first century Judaism. Um, and the you know, new perspective focuses on the question of merit and justification. But for the reformers, a lot of what they were concerned about was precisely what you're saying those various uh, practices of the medieval church that distracted from uh, contact with God in Christ. And, and that has not disappeared. <laughs> That's still the case. I, I think I've told you, got you guys this story, um, but in a graduate school at Concordia Seminary, it's a Lutheran, conservative Lutheran seminary, we had a class on justification, which every class is about justification and Lutheran seminaries, <laughs> but it was a class, and the professor was talking about uh, medieval conceptions about Jesus and Mary and how Jesus was uh, thought to be so, there were misconceptions about Jesus and his power and his aloofness in relationship to Mary being a woman and a mother and more approachable, and, and you know, we're listening to that fine, so he invites a, um, a St. Louis University professor of theology uh, into class to talk to us about Mary. And sure enough, almost the first thing out of his mouth was, when I pray, I pray to Mary. And I pray to her because as a mother, I feel she's more approachable than Jesus because Jesus is, you know, uh, the king, the pantocrator, the, the ruler overall. And, and he seems to be rather stern and, and, uh, in his rule. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, where are you getting that from pictures, from images? You don't get that from the New Testament. But anyway, the whole point was that um, the, a misconception about Jesus and our relationship to him, our union with him, our, our being united to the head, then leads to these other kinds of ways of accessing God and God's grace through other mediators, through the mediatrix of you know, Mary or something like that. And uh, that's, that's very applicable today and, and seems to almost be something of a application to this passage, because you do have, you do have some of this going on in certain, uh, certain areas of the Christian church today, the same kind of almost Judaistic practices um, that seem to be often a reversion to uh, the, the Tostakea of the old world. I wanted to return to verse 17 for just a moment, uh, if I could. Uh, the, the, the wording Paul has is interesting here. Uh, he's uh, mentioned food and drink, and then festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths, three, three different categories of um, of. Uh, observance of uh, holy days. And he says, these are uh, the shadows of the coming things. My NASB translates the second clauses, but the substance belongs to Christ. But what it actually says is, but the body of Christ um, doesn't have any verb in there. That's, um, that's, uh, uh, sub that's uh, added by the translators to make some sense of it. 
but I, I think the, the 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 syntax is a little bit odd. But I think what we're uh, what what we're seeing here is the uh, the shadows of the old covenant are fulfilled in what Paul calls the body of Christ. The you could say the body of Christ is what's casting the shadows back into the old covenant. And uh, this just goes back to something we've discussed either this episode or the last episode about the humanization. I think we talked about it last episode, the humanization of old covenant pra- practices and old covenant patterns. So well, the fulfillment of the shadows uh, is found in the body of Christ. That's where these, that's where these things now uh, come to their fullness in uh, those who are united to Christ to the circumcision of Christ, who have died to the flesh, who've died to the uh, died to the world, and now live in a new world, um, that's where these things come come to uh, come to fruition, and and come to fullness. So there's kind of a there's a there's a corporate dimension to it. It's not just that the shadows are shadows of Jesus, uh, the Christ, but these are shadows of the body of Christ. That uh, that's the fulfillment of of the old covenant. I'm not sure how you can deny that. I know there's some commentators who want to interpret Soma here just uh, without reference to, to Jesus or the church, uh, Jesus body, the church, because Paul does use that word in other places to refer to something else other than the church or, but I mean, how do you, how do you deny that verse 19 seems to be saying something very similar? So hold fast to the head, that's Christ. From whom the whole body, and that clearly is is a reference to uh, the body of Christ. O'Brien has a really interesting discussion about the the syntax of this verse twenty three, and I found it compelling in many ways. I don't know that I have the expertise to decipher his grammatical uh, arguments, but the way he translates it is like this: He says, um, "Which things lead." And then there's a dash, which things lead, though having a reputation for wisdom in the spheres of self-made worship, humility, and severe treatment of the body without any value whatsoever, to the gratification of the flesh. In other words, which things lead, then there's a parenthetical comment, to the gratification of the flesh. And the idea is, what he argues is that these people are still worried about satisfying the flesh. These, they're still worried. They're still obsessed with living in this old world. And so, and that, that seems to be an interesting way to end this discussion is that, okay, these guys are still wanting to satisfy, to gratify, to indulge the flesh. And if we, have a fuller understanding of the flesh. It doesn't just mean, you know, bodily pleasure or, you know, sexual lust or, or, or even gluttony or eating, but the flesh, as we've seen it used here already in verse 11, being characterizing the whole way of life, the whole order, the whole sociological kind of uh, ordering of the old world. There's still they're still indulging that they're not recognizing that that's all come to an end. Which seems to be a, um, it's, there's a NT Wright emphasizes the irony of Paul's arguments here. And that would be an ironic uh, twist at the end. Presumably what they're offering, uh, what they claim to be offering is something 
a higher way of, of being a Christian. Uh, you know, they they want to uh, abase themselves and severe treatment of the body. They look like they're trying to combat flesh and elevate themselves beyond flesh. But Paul dismisses it as just another aspect or another manifestation of fleshly desire and fleshly indulgence. So again, the go back to the comments I made at the beginning of this episode, that the fundamental thing that Paul's doing, the, the, the undergirding principle of the whole argument of, of his whole perspective here is the, this binary between two worlds, between the old age and the new age, the old world and the new, new world. Uh, one of them is contained in Christ and all those who are in Christ, and the other one is a reversion to this old world. And everything in that old world is uh, a, an expression of flesh. That flesh needs to be stripped away uh, in order to live in the spirit, which is what Paul's going to go on and exhort us to in the last couple of chapters. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm